Our Father, we want to ask one more time uh, this weekend, would you open the eyes of our hearts uh, to the spiritual realities that are all around us, to the heavenly realities that work their way out in our lives and in our experience. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would keep us from naivety about the way the world is and the way the spiritual realms are and equip us instead, indeed arm us. Lord, help us this morning as we read and reflect on these verses to be those who put on the full armour of God that you've given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be those who stand firm in him. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Did you know that the biggest threat to the church, or to put it in the terms we've talked about this weekend, the biggest threat to gospel community is something that I think we very rarely think about and may not even be aware of. I say something... Better perhaps someone, that being the devil, or Satan, as he is sometimes referred to. Now some of you might be thinking, uh, maybe a small handful, I didn't think the devil existed. I thought he was sort of a, you know, a remnant of a former medieval age where people, you know, you see wood carvings and pictures of this, you know, this red sort of pointy-eared horned figure with a pitchfork going around just torturing people, right? Isn't that just a figment of another era? So old-fashioned and out of date. He doesn't actually exist, does he? Others may be thinking, well, no, I I think I've got to admit he exists. The Bible does talk about him. He just doesn't seem very active in our part of the world. Because if the devil was active, if Satan was at work, we'd see certain things and experience certain things. Well, like that line from The Usual Suspects, Have you seen that film? The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. And my guess, if at the water cooler at work tomorrow, you ask people what they thought about the devil, they'd say something like that, wouldn't they? He doesn't exist. Uh, Well, not only does the Bible and and the uh, Apostle Paul say that the devil exists, he has featured more than once in this letter to the Ephesians, Not only does he say he exists, but he also says that the devil has declared full-scale war. Full-scale war and on the church. Do you see verse 12? Let me read it again for us. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That is to say Christians have no fight with the world, right? Christians are not people who who, who are at war with other people. If you feel that you're at war with the world, rethink that, because Paul says explicitly here, doesn't he, we are not, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. All of that language, again, we have seen it briefly in Ephesians already, the rulers and the authorities. This is, this is Paul's way of describing the devil, Satan, and his minions, those who do his work for him, and, and rather like he's done previously in the letter, he lays it on with a trowel, doesn't he? As he outlines all of these different entities in the heavenly realms, the spiritual forces of evil. And the book of Ephesians tells us that that group of people headed by Satan, the devil, have declared war on the church. The devil hates the church. The devil hates you. He hates what this group Represents. He hates the gatherings that are taking place all around the world this morning. He hates it 
with a passion. Why? Well, because the church is the visible representation of his defeats. So flick back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. Paul talks about the power that God has exerted in the world, demonstrated. A power which, chapter 1, verse 20, he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above, you see it again, all rule and authority and power and dominion. You might have thought when you first read that, that's talking about uh, earthly authorities. I think he's actually talking about the satanic, demonic authorities. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Jesus Christ has conquered the church, and uh, sorry, the, the, uh, the, the devil, and verse 22, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The church speaks of the defeat of the devil by the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that victory, the devil is, is hemorrhaging followers. Right? They're leaving him by the day. Again, we read about that, didn't we, in chapter 2, verse 1. We were told, or chapter, I think verse, uh, verse 2, we were told uh, before we were um, followers of Jesus, we were followers uh, of the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Every time someone becomes a Christian, it's as though Jesus Christ kind of plunders them from the kingdom of the devil for his own kingdom. Can you imagine what it would be like to watch your followers just walking away from you again and again and again? And that reality, says Paul, is rubbed in the face of the devil every single day. So chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, chapter 3, verse 10 says his intent, God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So the devil and his minions are up wherever they are now in the heavenly realms, looking down on this, seeing the wisdom of God demonstrated. The wisdom of God in his saving and unifying work, undoing the work of the devil. And it's being rubbed in their face all of the time. His work undone, his followers leaving him, God's wisdom portrayed in the world. The devil hates the church. And as a result of that, has, as it were, declared war on the church in a consistent, concerted effort to undo the work that Jesus Christ has done. And so you and I as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, must not be naive about that. Paul's aim in the book of Ephesians has been again and again, hasn't it, been to open the eyes of the Ephesians, spiritually speaking, to what is going on in the heavenly realms. And this is a big part of that. That's what he wants the Ephesians to know about. He wants them, he wants us to know that we live in a war zone and that we mustn't be naive, therefore, now that raises the question, doesn't it? Right? If, if we live in a war zone, the devil's declared war on the church, what does that actually look like in practice for the devil to be at work in the world? Because you might have thought it would look like you know, one of those zombie movies. There's another one just come out on Netflix. I don't plan to watch it. It's a, I think it's a sort of South Korean movie that has sort of crazy, sort of possessed people running around just devouring each other. Is that what it looks like 
uh, when the devil declares war on the world? Should that be what we, you know, when we walk out of here, look out for the zombies who are going to try and take over the world? Or if not that, might it look a bit more like Harry Potter or something like that, where there are, you know, well, maybe there are actually wizards and, and witches somewhere. We, the muggles, can't really see them. But if you have your eyes open all of a sudden, you will see there are people engaged in that kind of demonic, satanic activity. Well, that kind of thing can happen, but there's no reason why we should expect it to look like that. Certainly not like a Harry Potter movie, I don't think. And here's two reasons why. First, because the devil is very, very smart. He's very, very smart and very, very powerful. And if he can use uh, materialism uh, or secularism, or maybe uh, careerism. There's a lot of careerism in London, isn't there? If he can use those contemporary ideologies and those worldviews, or indeed just a kind of complacency about him, or indeed an ignorance about him, then he'll use that. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. If he can use ignorance, complacency, or all of these different things... Uh, so that people walk blindly into his kingdom and even away from the kingdom of Jesus Christ, then he'll use that. It doesn't matter to him whether he's visible or invisible in the work. He'll use whatever he can to draw people away. He's no fool. He's very, very sophisticated. And so that's one of the reasons why I think in the West, certainly, as if you went to other cultures around the world, it may well be that you would see more overt uh, demonic activity. Speak to brothers and sisters from the African continent, they will tell you that they've seen things, very dramatic things. I don't think we need to disbelieve them or think they're just you know, crazy from a, uh, an inferior culture to ours, less sophisticated. That, that could be how the devil manifests himself. But he knows what he's doing and he'll work in the Western world in a subtle, unseen kind of way to draw people away. But here's the second reason why I think we don't necessarily see visibly the work of the devil in the world around us. It is that his main weapon is not crazy, supernatural, visibly scary tactics. His main weapon, his main tactic, the Bible says again and again, is to lie to us. Lies. So that you and I, in the church are engaged in a war of words with the father of lies. A war of words with the father of lies. Jesus says as much. Uh, so John chapter 8 verse 44. Uh, this is Jesus speaking of the devil. He says he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's the title Jesus wants to give to the devil. A liar and the father of lies. Or Revelation chapter 12 verse 9. You can look this up later. Describes the devil. It describes him as the ancient serpent. Reflecting on Genesis 3. He was called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world. And both of those moments, Jesus there and John in Revelation chapter 12, they are reflecting back on Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, where we first encounter the devil uh, in the world. And, and what is it that uh, the devil does in Genesis chapter 3? If you can remember back, you've got Adam and Eve, 
Uh, they're living in God's perfect world under his perfect rule. And they've been given this good command from God. God has spoken to them life-giving words. And then the devil, I was going to say creeps in, he sort of, I guess he slides in, doesn't he? He slides onto the scene. And what does he do? He sidles up to Eve. Adam is there, listening in, abdicating his responsibility and authority. And, and the devil slides up to Eve. And what does he do? He lies to her. He distorts God's truth. And he denies God's truth. That is his modus operandi from the very beginning. And that carries on through to today. So I was just reading this morning, you know, in the newspapers about what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. And uh, you will have heard about the propaganda war that is being waged at the moment. Putin and Cohen, indeed, this is true in the West, everybody wants to, to uh, control the airwaves, don't they? Or, or the internet these days. Putin is busy shutting down uh, different stations and producing his own propaganda. He's had films made over the last year that are all about the... Uh, the, the, um, the, the righteous cause of Russia against the evil Ukrainians. Propaganda in a war is possibly the most powerful weapon. And the devil knows that. And so he is waging a propaganda war against God. I used to work in, a, in my study where we used to live. I used to look out onto our garden. And... Um, Immediately outside the, the, the office, there were some bushes. And you looked at the bushes on a normal day and you couldn't see anything. Uh, but then at certain times of day, the sun would come low and would shine through the bushes. And you could see there spider's webs that had been woven across the bushes. You weren't looking for them most of the time, but at the right time of day, you could see them. And you could see the spiders there just sitting still, waiting. And the unlucky insects that had flown into them one by one. This world that we live in has been woven through with lies by the devil. And most of the time we're not looking for them and so we don't really see them. But they are there waiting for unsuspecting people to get caught by them. To believe them and get tangled in the devil's web, in that spider's web. It's the, it's the advert that you see uh, on, the, on the tube. Yeah, you're sitting there bleary-eyed tomorrow morning on your way to work and you look up and there's an advert that implicitly says to you, if you get this thing, if you could just buy this one thing, your life will be happy and meaningful and purposeful. That's how the advertisers work, isn't it? Buy our products and everything will be okay for you. Live for this world and it will be okay. And we sort of look at the advert and a little part of us thinks, yeah, yeah, if I had those things... My life would be okay. Uh, it's the rom-com that you sit down and watch on Friday night. You want to switch off and not really think about anything. And you watch this rom-com and it sends you the message implicitly. If you could just find Mr. Right or Miss Right, everything would be okay in your life. Invest all of your time and your energy uh, emotionally and financially in finding that person. Everything will be okay. Uh, it's the PSE, PSHE teacher at school who, who, who means well and says to you, only you can know who you truly are. Don't let anyone define you or tell you who you must be. You do you. Lie after lie that comes to us. We're in a war of words, a war for truth. 
And we as the church mustn't be naive about that. We mustn't sort of walk around cluelessly. That's what Paul's trying to do in these verses. He's trying to open our eyes so that we don't get snagged by the devil and caught by him. There's a lie in, uh, there are lies in a war of words. So what is the answer? Okay, if Paul is saying, open your eyes to the spiritual realms, to the war that we are in. What is the answer? What is the defense that we have been given in this war? Well, that's verses 10 and 11. As he closes his letter, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. God has not left us like um, civilians uh, on a battlefield. I mean, walking around absolutely defenceless and at the mercy of the devil's snipers or whoever it is. God has given us full body armour to protect us in this battle. And so these verses at the end of Ephesians from verse, whatever it is, verse 13 onwards, it's like that moment in the Bond movie when he goes to visit Q. Like every single Bond movie has it. He goes to visit Q and you get this great moment where Q shows him the armour that he's been preparing for him or the weapons that he's got for him. And it's just great as you see the gadgets that Bond is to go out and be equipped with. You know he's going to use them at some point in the movie. right? This moment in Ephesians is a bit like that movie. As Paul says, Look, let me just talk you through bit by bit the armour that God has prepared for you in this war. And before we dive into it and work through it, we need to note just very quickly that all of this armour that's been given to us is second-hand armour. Now, you might think to yourself, oh, right, that, oh, that's, uh, that sounds less than ideal. Right? I'd, I'd quite like to wear you know, brand spanking new armour. Thank you very much. But the reason it's actually very good news that this is second-hand armour is that this is the armour that Jesus Christ wore when he won the first victory over Satan. You see chapter 6, verse 10? Uh, it says there, finally, be strong in the Lord." And in his mighty power. Right? So our job is to stand in the power of Jesus Christ. And you could scribble down these verses and look at them later if you want to. In Isaiah chapter 59, verses 16 and 17, or Isaiah chapter 11, verses 4 and 5, we see described there uh, by God, by the prophet Isaiah, the armour that the Messiah will wear when he comes once and for all, to win the victory over God's enemies. And when you go back, you'll see in, in, in the large part, it's exactly the same armour that is being described here. And the Messiah has come. Jesus Christ has come, and Paul tells us elsewhere, he has won the victory over the devil, wearing this armour as he did it. And now, so therefore, Paul is saying to the church... Stand in Jesus's victory. This is the armour that you've got to wear. Put on his armour. He has won the fight already. The devil is like, it's guerrilla warfare now. Okay, the, the battle has been won ultimately, but the, the devil and his minions still lurk, prowling around, trying to take people down. But it's, it, they're, they're ultimately a defeated enemy, just trying to take people with them on their way down. Now you stand in the victory that Jesus Christ has already won for you. But you do need to stand. You do need to put on the full armour of God. That's the instruction, the imperative in verse 13, isn't it? Therefore, put on 
the full armour of God's. And so a, a church, a gospel culture is a gospel culture that will be, is a culture that will be proactive and intentional about putting on this armour. You wouldn't think about walking out into a war zone dressed like we're dressed today, would you? If you knew there was armour available to you, you would kit yourself up and get ready and go out. Well, that's what Paul is saying to us this morning. Put on the full armour of God. Starting with what he calls the belt of truth. I'll read from verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. You see, it says again again, stand, stand, stand. Verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The belt of truth. Uh, Elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, Paul has spoken about the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The word of truth is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has come to us, that was proclaimed to the Ephesians and that they believed in. Uh, In chapter 4 verse 21, Paul has spoken already of the, the truth that is in Jesus. The heart of the message of the scriptures is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the theme tune that, as it were, brings the whole thing together. And now Paul is saying to the Ephesian church, to us here this morning, make it the the belt, as it were, that you put on that binds everything together, that holds everything together. You know, belts keep your trousers up. They keep everything together. And that's what Paul wants them to do with the word of truth. To take a different image, he's saying, um, it's a bit like putting glasses on. Uh, We put the word of truth in front of us. And it helps us all of a sudden to understand the world. We spoke about the devil's lies that are all around. How is it that you get good at spotting the devil's lies? How do, how do you get good at spotting that they are, in fact, lies? Well, if you're seeing the world through the lens of the truth that God has given to us. So as the devil's lies come, Paul says, put on the belt of truth to help you see, it, see them. And to help you understand the way the world really is with Jesus Christ at the centre of it. And again, you can think to yourself, right, and this is what we need to do as we read these verses. You've got to think, right, practically, what is that going to mean for me? It's 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 a fun image. You can play around with it. But what is it actually going to mean for you tomorrow morning to put on the belt of truth? What is it going to look like for you to have a a weekly rhythm and pattern that sees you putting that on day by day? I remember my mother-in-law telling me about a time she was sitting in a sermon and the person preaching talked about how they had this resolution. It it was summed up in the words, um, no Bible, no breakfast. No Bible, no breakfast. Uh, Such was the the level of priority they wanted to give to putting the word of truth in their life, putting on the belt of truth, as it were. They thought, I I won't even think about walking out the front door to start my day without having been in God's word. That's how important it is. It's as important. It's more important than getting my breakfast in me. Almost some people, these odd people, don't have breakfast. Most of us start our day with breakfast. We know we need it to survive the day and get through the day. This person was saying... Uh, I, I need God's words to survive the day. My, my mother-in-law, uh, she gave it her own unique twist. Uh, not no Bible, no breakfast. She said, no Bible, no lipstick. <laughs> I wouldn't dream of walking out the front door without my lipstick on. <laughs> Whatever it is for you, 
work it out. We're in a war zone. We wouldn't dare walk out the door without putting the armour on, the belt of truth. Next he goes on the, the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, that's the second half of verse 14. Stand firm there with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Again, chapter 4, verse 24, uh, Paul says this. He says, put on the new self, the new you. We've talked about that already this weekend. Put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. <clears throat> Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, by his spirit taking up residence in your heart, there is a whole new you. A whole new you characterised, says Paul, by righteousness and holiness. And so now we need to get expert, as it were, putting that on and letting that define who we are and our sense of self. A little while ago, I was sitting on, a, uh, sitting on the bus going home and there was a, a woman in the seat in front of me. You know that, you know that scenario where you're sitting, on a, you're sitting on the bus and someone's talking really loudly on, the, on their phone and everyone else is sitting silently kind of just with their eyes down, trying to look like it's not happening. But this is, it's like, you, you know, everyone can hear what you're talking about, right? And it's, it's, they're just so socially awkward because they're so, uh, so socially unaware of what's going on. And this woman was talking away, and she's clearly quite upset about something that had happened to her, and was talking all of this through with her friend and what she should do about it. And she was chatting away on the phone, saying all these different stuff, and she said, you know, I was thinking to myself, I, I might just go and do this, those horrible things to this person. But she said, but then I thought to myself, I'm not that kind of person. And then she said, oh, I thought about, oh, I might go and do this. But then I thought, well, I'm not that kind of person. And I was sitting behind her thinking to myself, I think you might be that kind of person. <laughs> but do you see what she's doing there? She's saying to herself, what kind of person am I? Because that ought to dictate the way I behave in this situation. Well, as Christians, whatever situation we walk into, we should think to ourselves, what kind of person am I now? And Paul would say to us, you have been created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You have been given by God through grace a true righteousness through the Lord Jesus Christ. You haven't earned it. You've done nothing to deserve it. But you have been given it. And now you need to define yourself according to that reality. Put on the breastplate of righteousness because the devil has lies he loves you to believe about yourself. Lies that we define ourselves according to. Oh, I'm so sorry about that. I'm just, a, I'm just an angry person. It's just the way I am. Sometimes I just do fly off the handle. Sorry about that. I can't help it. Um, oh, look, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a corporate lawyer. just means I'm busy. I'm not going to be very available. I've got to apologise in advance for that. It's just who I am. Uh, sorry, look, things have happened to me in my past. People have treated me very badly. And that means sometimes I treat other people very badly. I'm sorry about that. It's just the way that I am. You see all these different lies that we believe about ourselves? Things that might be true in our experience, but that don't have to be definitive for how we act. Because Jesus Christ has given us an identity. He's given us a true righteousness and holiness. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, says Paul. This is your core identity. 
He goes on, uh, have feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. That's verse 15. He says, with your, it goes on, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Chapter 2, verse 14 of Ephesians, Paul has said, Jesus Christ is our peace. Or chapter 2, verse 17, it says, he came and preached peace to us. So now again, by grace, God has given us a peace between us as people and between us and God's. This is the heart of the gospel. And so now Paul says, as it were, I think the picture is of shoes or sandals or something like that. He says, have your feet characterised by a readiness that comes from this peace. Have your feet, have your posture, as it were, directed towards peace in the world. Now, this is so key. This is so key uh, in the life of a church, in the heart of a gospel culture. Because you and I live in a culture that is very angry, increasingly angry, isn't it? Like, you spend any time on social media and you will see that. It's a very angry culture, a very judgmental culture, with very dysfunctional ways of communicating that, that are becoming increasingly normal. And on top of that, not only are we a very angry culture, we're also a very easily offended culture in which everyone is positioning themselves all the time as the victim, right? That's the normal posture of people these days. That's how you gain an advantage in our society if you're the victim. And add into that the fact that we have increasingly no real trust in authority, right? Who are you to tell me what to do? We laugh at the authorities. We like to think we're independent and ploughing our own furrow. And we love talking about our, our rights, as people, our fundamental rights. You have rights. We've been taught it since, since the earliest of ages. We don't talk very much about the responsibilities that come with rights. We just talk a lot about the rights. And then add into that, we've had two years of being pulled apart from each other, right? In ways that have cut us off from normal ways of relating to people and have taught us to just look after ourselves in our own little bubbles, doing our own little thing. And all of that, plus more, is the perfect cocktail for division. It's a Molotov cocktail. And the devil has the matches. And he's just waiting to light it and to watch the explosion that comes, even in the church, as we live according to those realities. And so Paul says, here's the solution the solution is to have feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Have a posture that, as its default, is heading towards peace. Actively, proactively move towards people. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. No, be, be deeply convinced at the core of your being that the unity that God has given us in the church is more important than the rights that we feel that we have. Be ready to forgive people when they come to you asking for it. Be quick to say sorry for the things that you have done. Tell yourself reconciliation between two people is a wonderful and beautiful thing, not an admission of defeat. Do all of those things and be ready in advance 
to do all of those things. Because those are easy things for me to say now and easy things for us to nod along to and say, yeah, yeah, we agree. We think that sounds really, really great. But when the moment comes when someone's done something to you that was wrong, in those moments it's really, really hard to say, I'm going to forgive them. Or if you're like me, when you've done something wrong, the proud part of you will find it very, very hard to go and say sorry. And so we do need to think in advance and be convinced of these things. We need to put on uh, the shoes, the sandals that speak of the gospel of peace so that we're ahead of it and ready for it when it happens. Have feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Then he goes on, verse 16. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The image I think Paul is calling to mind is an image that may well have been familiar to the Ephesians. In, in the Roman army, again, they would often have these big shields, like four foot long shields. And they would coat the front of the shields with material that they could soak with water. So that as the flaming arrows of the enemies came in, uh, they didn't just sort of, weren't just protected by the, shield, uh, by the shields, but the, the flames were extinguished as they landed. They sort of come flying in and then they would just be put out by the damp on the front of the shields. Well, Paul is picturing the devil's lies as flaming arrows. Right? That's what he talks about them there. These are the lies that the devil is sending in all of the time. And the, the encouragement of Paul is therefore to take up the shield of faith as a way of extinguishing those lies as they come in. Faith, not just believing that there is a God. Right? That's what people think faith is, isn't it? So yeah, no, I, I believe there's a God. Now a right biblical Christian understanding of faith is the active decision to trust the word of God. It's the active decision to trust the word of God on a day-to-day -day basis in the very big things in life and in the very small things of life. And Paul is saying to us, look, day by day we need to take up the shield of faith to believe the truth of God actively against the lies of the devil as they come in. The devil says to you, God doesn't love you really. Just look at what's going on in your life. How can you think God's loving you and all of this is going wrong? God doesn't really want to forgive you. I may be the first time you did that, maybe even the second or the third time, but you've just done it for the fourth time, the fifth time, the 70th time. God couldn't forgive you for that. And we say, no, he tells me that he will. And I trust him that he said that. We put up the shield and the flame is extinguished. The devil says, God doesn't really want to provide for you. Don't live that sacrificial lifestyle that the gospel calls you to. Hoard, gather, burn the candle at both ends. It's okay to be a workaholic. You've got to look after number one. God won't provide. And we say, no, God's already, he's already told me that he's blessed me richly in the heavenly realms. He is for me. He'll provide for me and my family as we need and as I prioritise what he calls me to prioritise. The, ar the arrow is coming in, we take up the shield of faith and it's extinguished. The devil says, you know that church you're part of? It's pathetic, isn't it? I mean, you know how your colleagues think about your church? You know how the world thinks about your church? It's pathetic, isn't it? Such a ramshackle group of people, such a small gathering on a Sunday. You should have bigger, better priorities than that. 
There are so many other things you could do with your Sunday, so many other things you could be doing with your midweek evenings, bigger priorities that you should pursue. And we say, well, God's told me that the church is at the very centre of his plans for the universe. The church is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ rules over everything. So I'm going to prioritise what God says I should prioritise. The arrow is coming in, we pick up the shield of faith, and we choose to believe. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. Uh, This takes us back to yesterday. Who do you think you are? You remember that question? And you remember the answer that Paul has given us? By grace you have been saved. You are a saved person. And as we unpack yesterday, or have said this morning already, the world wants to force lots of different identities on us. And the devil has loads of lies that he wants to feed towards us. And what we do when they come is we put on a helmet, the helmet of salvation, And we say, first and foremost, I'm a saved person. That's my fundamental identity. Verse 17. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Most of this is armour. Speaks of of being on the defensive or to to standing firm, at least, against the assault of the devil as it comes at us. This is the, the weapon that we are given, the sword of the Spirit. And we are to wield it. And if we're looking for a kind of a, a, an expert teacher to help us get good at wielding the sword of the Spirit, then we need look no further than Jesus Christ. Because if you look at Luke chapter 4 later, you see exactly what Jesus does when he is attacked by the devil. You remember Jesus in the wilderness as he goes off for that time before he begins his public ministry? And the devil approaches him in the wilderness. And what does the devil do? He comes and he threads lies, half-truths to Jesus. He tempts him. And what does Jesus do in return? He explicitly quotes the Bible back at the devil. It's really striking. He just quotes three times from the book of Deuteronomy. Implicitly, he says, look, hey, hey, the devil, you're coming at me with your lies. I want to combat your work. I want to stand firm. So what does he do? He pulls out the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God's tells the devil to get back with the truth of God's words. And again, you and I need to get experts with these weapons. You're thinking, right, how do I get good at wielding the sword of the spirit? Well, I guess that's that's what the bookstall at the back is about. All of those books, uh, I've looked at them all, and I'm confident in Tom's choices. They are all books that are about helping you get better with the word of God's. They're all just excellent Bible teachers who have distilled their thought into a book. So that as you buy the book, it's not not like you kind of think, oh, I'm going to read Hilary Mantel this week, or I could read Tim Keller, or I could, you know. They're not books just among other books. They are books expressly designed to help you get expert with the sword of the Spirit. Masterclasses, as it were, so that you're equipped with it. And you can think of any number of different ways. Slowly but surely, you think, well, where do I start? I feel so far back. I don't know where you start, you just start. Because the way you get expert is by committing to practicing day after day, day after day. Picking up the sword of the Spirit. And then lastly, Paul says, perhaps the most underused weapon of all, verse 18. He says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. 
Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. I haven't actually counted up the number of times Paul says pray in those few verses, but it's simple, isn't it? He just says pray, pray, pray. Pray for yourselves, pray for the church, pray for me, pray, pray, pray. And like I say, in my own personal life, I think, and in my experience, certainly in the Western church, it is the most neglected of all of the weapons that we have been given, but it is probably the most powerful of them all. To, to pray is like that moment that you get in war films when um, the soldier bravely has kind of fought his way into enemy territory and then has found himself cut off and alone. But he's got the, he's got the radio and he gets on the radio and he speaks to HQ and he gives them his coordinates. He says, this is where I am, these are my coordinates. And then he just, they say, just hunker down, wait, we'll be there for you. And then what happens is he sits tight and he waits two minutes and then fighter jets fly over and they, they kind of bomb the territory in front of him and he's allowed to escape. To pray is to be like that soldier on the radio. We're in enemy territory, we're surrounded on all sides by hostile forces and we get the chance to get on the radio and call HQ and ask for backup, and to ask for help. That's how we should think about prayer. And yes, we should start our days with it. Yes, we should end our days with it. Yes, we should be a church with prayer meetings, as have happened this week. There should be lots of prayer all around, but we should scatter it, litter it through our day. Just as we walk into a a meeting at work, as we're aware of the temptations that might be put in front of us, temptations to anger or temptations to grieve, just say a short prayer, Lord, help me. Help me put on your uh, your armour in this meeting that I might stand firm against the devil's schemes. Uh, As the kids are coming home from school, you know, they're tired, you're tired, everyone's tired. There's a recipe for all kinds of arguments just brewing. Just pray, Lord, help me to put on the helmet of salvation. Help me to wear the breastplate of righteousness. Help us as a family to wield the sword of the spirit against the devil's lies in this moment. Pray and ask for God's help. And you'll be amazed to see how God helps you to stand. There is a war on. There is a war on. And we as the church must not be naive and clueless about that. Walking away from this weekend as though life just carries on as normal. We need the eyes of our hearts opened. That we might see what is going on in the heavenly realms that we might have our eyes opened to the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ that have been realised in our experience and that we've been blessed with. And then we need to get good at arming ourselves with the armour that is the gospel. And you might be thinking to yourself, as as we've talked over the last, whatever it's been, 20 minutes or so, walk through this thing, right, that's a lot, where do I start with all of this? Well, let me encourage you just practically maybe to pick one. Pick one piece of armour this week and ask for God's help at getting good at putting it on for yourself. Take some time to think into the situations where you will be tempted to act differently and think to yourself, this is what it'll look like for me to put the armour on in this moment. And then pray about it, trusting that God will enable you to stand against the devil's schemes. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much. We're so grateful. We praise you for the gospel, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the victory that he has won against the devil. And so we ask for ourselves now, keep our eyes open, Lord, that we might not be naive about his methods and his ways, that, he would, that we'd be realistic about the fact that he would love to take us down. He would love to see us walk away from the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd love to fracture and fragment our church. And so we ask that you would help us, therefore, to be those who put on the full armour of God in this present evil day, that we might stand against his schemes and his attacks. We've said lots this week and we've seen lots from your word about what it looks like to be a, a gospel culture, a church with the gospel at its heart, living that out. And so we pray, Lord, that as we go forward from here, you would help us to realise that reality so that your wisdom might be demonstrated to the world and to the heavenly realms and all of that for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.